it's good to have you here. We, uh, so let's see, it was three weeks ago uh, today that um, we got snowed out. And I had uh, prepared a sermon for that weekend. And then the next weekend I was going to be in Arizona. And I, I think I had uh, Scott scheduled to preach and then Gary scheduled to preach. And I didn't want to mess up their, uh, their sermons that they'd been uh, preparing. So we decided just to kind of move forward. And so tonight we're going to go back to uh, the passage we would have been covering three weeks ago. We're going to go back to chapter one, or chapter four, that's way back. Chapter four, verses one, two, three, and four, and it's where we're going to be today. Uh, over the years, uh, being here at Gateway, I have, uh, like in the 25 years, um, I've had the chance to know a lot of different pastors involved in a lot of different churches, and I've got to hear a lot of stories about a lot of church fights about a lot of church um, arguments, about churches that have split, about people who have left churches, uh, who were mad, who were angry. And I've kind of kept um, notes on all of those over the years. And I have a nice thick file of all the different things that churches have fought over. And so I wanted to just kind of get us thinking about this tonight. I was gonna just read you some of the things that I've seen churches fight over in the, uh, over the years. Not us, of course, but other churches. And then when I was coming uh, on my way to, uh, to church this morning, I had this idea, instead of just reading them, like we could play a game. So we're going to play a game, and I'm calling the game um, uh, Worth It or Not Worth It, okay? So this is, I just made this up, and um, I think it's going to be awesome. So this, this is how we do it. I'm going I'm to read you something that a church divided or fought over, and then I'm going to point at you, and you're going to just say really loud, Worth It? or not worth it, just all at once. We'll just have it out and see which one wins. But I first need to make sure that you can do this, that you're, you're capable. So when I, I point to you, I wanna hear you say worth it, all right? Ready? Worth it. Okay, now let's try not worth it. All right, so I know you can do it, here we go. Uh, so here are some of the you know, actual uh, things that churches have divided and fought over over the years. Um, I'm gonna read actually two, because they're kind of the same, sort of. Um, I heard this comment. Uh, we keep singing the same songs over and over and over again. We need some new songs. I've also heard people say we sing too many new songs. We need some of the old songs. In other words, it's about the frequency of songs. And churches, you better believe, have divided and argued and, and split over this. So I'm gonna ask you, is it worth it or not worth it? Not worth it. All right. So now the next one um, actually comes from Gateway. Um, not from this service, you know, it's the other services, obviously. Um, and by the way, this only works if you're completely honest, so I'll give you a minute to think about this. Two different comments I've heard, literally heard, from people in our church. The first one is this, if we don't turn the music down, I'm leaving. It's like a concert in here, okay? Second comment I've heard, if we don't crank the music up, I'm leaving. It's like a funeral in here, all right? All right? All right, so this is over the, the volume, all right? Is dividing a church over the volume worth it or not worth it? Worth it. Yeah, I heard a few of you say worth it. I, <laughs> I know. All right, how about this one? If we don't change the coffee, I'm leaving. Worth it. Worth it. <laughs> See, forget it. This isn't going to work. Uh, there's a guy named Tom, uh, Tom Rayner who is kind of a, a church consultant kind of guy. And a, a couple of months ago on his blog, for pastors, he put this thing up. He put, finish the sentence. Um, my church has fought over, and then pastors would go on there and write things their church, churches have fought over. So here's some of them. Um, these, are, these are great. Uh, my church fought over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. 
Now, I feel pretty safe because I'm pretty sure our uh, worship pastor can't grow facial hair. I'm not sure. <laughs> right? He said, challenge on. Challenge on, right? All right. Worth it or not worth it? No, come on. Not worth it. Uh, here's one. We won't vote on this one, but I have to read this one. Uh, one church d uh, actually split over this issue. They had some extra property, and they, they debated whether to use the extra church land to build a children's playground or a cemetery. Right? Which I suppose probably, how you voted probably depended on how old you were. I'm just thinking like maybe. Okay, here's one. Um, my church fought over whether or not to install stall dividers in the women's restroom. Worth it or not worth it? Uh, see, that's hard, right? <laughs> it just, oh, right. You, you want to sound spiritual and say not worth it, but you're like, I don't know. It kind of, it kind of is. Uh, my church fought over whether or not to remove the clock from the worship center. I just say right now, worth it. Okay, worth it. <laughs> we don't have a clock in here. Pretty soon we're going to collect watches at the door, I think. Uh, my church actually had a 45-minute heated argument over, what would a church have a 45-minute argument over? This is what it was. Over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. <laughs> worth it or not worth it? <laughs> yeah. My church fought over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. To which somebody commented, well, I guess it depends on who took the picture, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> worth it or not worth it? Uh, not worth it, okay? Here we go. If the, uh, my church fought over if the worship leader should have his shoes on during the worship service. Right? Uh, by the way, our sound guy often doesn't wear shoes. Is that not true? Isn't that true? Worth it or not worth it? Come on, you know you want to say not worth it. All right, here's one. Our, this is a huge one. Wow, this one blew up on the blog. Um, in my church, it says, somebody wrote, our deaconesses accidentally used cran grape juice for communion. And it started a fierce debate which ended in several families leaving the church. Now, I tell you, when I read it, it was hard enough, but what was really brutal was afterwards there was this long list of comments with people who were just brutal, who were like, man, we would fire those deaconesses. They don't even get paid. Like, how do you fire them, right? Like, again, worth it or not worth it? Oh, come on. Here's somebody that wrote, my church devoted two entire business meetings, right? What would be that important? Two entire business meetings to debate the purchase of a weed eater. Can I just say that seems wacky? Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Worth it or not worth it? No, but the joke was worth it, right? <laughs> Uh, many churches reported fighting over the coffee. In one church, for instance, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks blend and people left the church. In another church, they simply moved to a stronger blend and people left the church. Fighting and dividing over coffee, worth it or not worth it? Not worth it. If you say worth it, you've had too much coffee. Um, here's a couple notes. I just want to read these to you. This guy wrote, my church fought over allowing people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. Everyone knows red is the color of the devil, so, right? That one's silly. Here's my favorite one, my favorite one. Here we go. My church fought over using the term potluck instead of the term pot blessing. They do not live in Washington, obviously, because pot blessing in this state means something different than I, they were thinking of. <laughs> but, 
But the best part was, so, here's a comment. Here's a comment somebody wrote. This is brilliant. Track with me. This guy wrote this, and I thought it kind of, it, it was awesome. He wrote uh, in, the, in the comments below, the concept of luck contradicts the theology of a sovereign God. This issue is very serious. Good luck trying to resolve it. So I thought that was great. <laughs> now, so we are in uh, the, the book, really technically the epistle or the letter to the Philippian church. This is written by a guy named Paul who had, who had traveled to Europe, gone to Philippi, uh, planted a church, and then he, he moved on after a while and he traveled extensively, planted more churches, was shipwrecked, was beaten, was near death on several occasions, adrift at sea. Now, 11 years later, he's in prison. He's chained to a guard 24-7. He's facing potential execution and he hears that his favorite beloved church in Philippi is struggling. They're having some problems. So he's going to write to them in chapter four uh, with some very, very helpful advice. Let me pray for us. Father God, I, I thank you for bringing us here tonight. And I pray now, I, I know lots of things going on in our life, a lot of stuff that could distract us, but I pray that we would fix our attention now on your word. And I pray that your spirit would do what I cannot, that he would speak to our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So here's what he says at the beginning of chapter four. He says this, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So in this first verse, it's kind of interesting. He starts with the word therefore. And remember, whenever we're, we see the word therefore in the Bible, we always ask, what is the word therefore? Therefore. So what's it therefore? Well, at the end of chapter three, Paul was talking about the resurrection power of Jesus. You might remember that. That was about a month ago. Of course you remember it. And you might remember there were kind of three aspects to the resurrection power of Jesus. That it was the resurrection power of Christ that brought life to our dead souls, that it was the resurrection power of Christ that will raise our bodies someday when they're, when they're gone and they're dust, will raise them to new life. But in between there is also the resurrection power of God that is available to us for every situation that we face in life. And we'll talk more about that next week for every challenge. But I like what he does here again. Notice this, therefore my beloved brothers whom I love and then at the end of the verse is the word beloved, same word that appears twice. So Paul says you are loved and you are loved because Paul's about to make a really big ask of them. And so he begins kind of, this is pretty much what he's doing. He's saying, I'm telling you this because I love you. Right? So you ever done that with somebody? You gotta tell them something really hard. And so you start with, I'm only telling you this because I love you. When somebody comes to you and starts a conversation that way, you always know it's gonna be a hard conversation. And so Paul says, I love you, so here, here we go. Verse two. Now I entreat Euodia, that's a, a woman in the church, and I entreat Suntuke, that's another woman in the church in, in Philippi, to agree in the Lord. This is, this is the big issue that he wants to deal with here. Who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now women played a prominent role in the church in Philippi. In fact, um, it was at a Jewish women's prayer gathering that Paul had preached the gospel and a woman named Lydia had come to Christ. And then other women, we know there was uh, the young woman who was a uh, demon possessed and a slave and she was set free from um, that demon and became a follower. And these women played a important foundational role in this church, including two women, one named Euodia, who we're gonna talk about today, and another 
named Suntuke. And now we know very, very little about these women. All we really know is what we find in this passage and then we can extrapolate some stuff from the context. But the, the text reveals to us six really important things that we want to talk about. I'm gonna put the points up here on the screen as well because we're gonna move so fast that I'll leave that up there so you kind of know where we are. And the first one is this. Here's what we know about these women. They were mature believers. In verse three, he says this, that their names uh, are in the book of life. He's talking uh, about the fact that these were believers, that these are women who had trusted Jesus. They had received the grace of God. They were in God's family. They had the Holy Spirit. They, they had a new nature in them. These are believers. Not only are they believers, but they are mature believers because he describes them as having labored side by side with Paul. They were part of Paul's team when he was in Philippi in the gospel together. So they labored for the gospel with Paul. They used their gifts. They used their abilities, their time, um, their resources. They used it to, to minister to people in the church and to serve them. And they also used it for, for gospel ministry to proclaim Christ in, in the community. These women were teammates with each other. They were teammates with Paul. They were mature Believers, just like many of us, mature believers. And the reason I mention this is because even mature believers apparently can have disagreements. And I don't know if that comes as a shock to you or if that's kind of like a duh statement, but these are two mature women who had a disagreement. And so he says this, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Suntuke to agree. So they're not agreeing on something. Now we don't know what the disagreement was about. In fact, it's probably best that we don't know because it opens up some, some possibilities for us. But at some point they disagreed. Uh, it was uh, some matter uh, and, and this happens even to mature believers. So if you find yourself suddenly disagreeing with someone, you know, you don't necessarily have to be shocked and question your salvation. Or if somebody you know has a disagreement with somebody, again, this happens to the best of us. Here's the problem. They let it go unresolved. They didn't, they didn't deal with it. They didn't, they didn't work it out. They held on to their opinion or, or whatever it was. And two results we know happen here. The one is it affected their relationship with each other. So they're sisters in Christ, but they're fighting. This does not reflect the work of Christ in their lives. And secondly, it infected the church as well. There's a poem, it's been around for a lot of years, but I thought it was great for this. To live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story, right? Isn't that often the way that it is? And so, so there's this, this conflict. Conflict happens to the, even the best of Christians, and conflict can happen even in the best of churches. We're not, we're not perfect. I mean, I was thinking this week about the disciples after three intensive years with the Lord Jesus Christ, walking with him, being discipled by him, watching him and, 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 and his character. One of the last conversations they all have as a group together is they're arguing with, with each other about which one of them was the greatest. And so Jesus has to jump in and, and help them through this. And you know, over the years, I've seen conflict be, be, you know, between some of the godliest people that I know, church leaders, I've seen pastors, Pastors who get in conflict with each other, deacons who get in conflict with each other, mature married couples, maybe that shocks you, like mature Christians who are married to each other who disagree on something and then they have to work it through. I've seen it between longtime friends in Christ who suddenly have a disagreement and never talk again. 
I've seen people stomp out of uh, church meetings. I've seen Christians attack each other on Facebook. I've actually, we've actually had a situation here where, where someone will come to me and say, you know, um, pastor, what, what service does so-and-so go to? I've actually had this happen. I'll say, well, I don't know. I think they go to nine or whatever it is. And they'll say, oh, good, because I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to see them. We're having a fight. And, and, and I just want to be in another worship service. That usually leads to a whole nother conversation between us. But, you know, um, and people who just leave the church. Paul has some better advice. Paul says, you need to work it out. Here's the next thing we notice in the passage, and that is that apparently the thing that they disagreed on was not essential. So here's what I mean by this. He says again, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Suntuke. Now, the construction here of this sentence is very interesting. He, he treats them as equally. So he says, I entreat one and I entreat the other. Um, in other words, Paul doesn't take sides in this issue which I find interesting. Now, if the issue had been false doctrine, Paul would have taken a side and corrected them. He's done it before. If the issue had been that one of them sinned against the other, Paul would have called them out on that because he, he's, does that, he's done that before. What was the conflict about? We don't know. It must have been some matter of personal preference or what we might call a disputable matter or uh, what we might call a non-essential matter. So some, some issues uh, for the Christian are essentials. There are things uh, for which there's no room for compromise. And over the last couple weeks, I've been pouring through uh, Gateway's doctrinal statement and studying it and looking it over. And, and I can tell you that um, our doctrinal statement takes some pretty hard stands on essential issues. So for instance, our doctrinal set, uh, statement says that we believe that the Bible is the word of God, that it is inspired, it came from God, it, it, that is the authority for faith and practice in our church. And if someone was to come along and say, see, I don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, we'd have have to say, well, we're going to have to disagree at this point, right? We're not going to just bend and, oh, okay, no, we're going to say we stand on the word of God. That is something that we're willing to, to fight over, willing to die over. We believe that God is one in three persons. Um, that is something we stand on. We believe that Jesus is God, that uh, before he came to this earth, he, he existed in eternity past, part of the Godhead. We believe that he came down here and lived in a human body. We believe that he lived a righteous life life on this earth. We believe that he went to the cross where he died for our sin. We believe that he was buried. We believe that he rose on the third day. We believe that he appeared to many. We believe that he ascended to heaven where he now sits uh, at the right hand of God, mediator for us. We believe this. We're not going to bend on the deity of Christ. Uh, we're willing literally to fight for that, to contend for that, as scripture would say. Uh, we believe that we are all born sinners. And again, we will contend for that, that we need a savior. We believe that salvation comes uh, when we believe in Christ and he gives us a gift and that gift is called grace. We stand on these things. We contend for these things. We will not bend on these things. They are essential. But not everything is essential. Some things are what we might call non-essentials or secondary issues. Some churches call them distinctives. They may be things that a church takes a stand on, but not because it's a right or wrong issue. It's, it's an issue of conscience. So sometimes there are things that we hold on to that we might call a personal preference or a personal conviction. So again, going back to uh, the beginning of the sermon, like some of you apparently have a very strong conviction about coffee, all right? So we would say that's fine. You can have a conviction on coffee, all right? But we don't fight over coffee. 
Some of you may have a, a strong conviction about worship song styles. Again, that's, that's great, but we don't fight over that. It's not an essential issue. Some of you have, you know, you have preferences when, it, when we worship. It's like you sit on your hands or one hand up or two hands up or cross your hands or raise the roof. I don't know what you do, right? Again, this, isn't, this is a preference, this is some, but it's not an essential thing. We don't fight over this. Some of you may have really strong opinions about the color of shoes the pastor should wear when he's preaching, and you just, again, that's, a, that's your opinion. Keep it to yourself. Uh, some of you have opinions about preaching style. So, you know, I like to preach book, book by book, um, verse by verse. Uh, but I, again, this is, this is not an essential issue. Uh, there are other churches that do it other ways and they do it well. Teaching is done well and we don't fight over that issue. Uh, there are people who want to fight over Bible versions. We don't, we don't fight over Bible versions. There are, there are people who have preferences about alcohol. Again, you know, some people have the conviction they won't drink at all. Some have that they will drink, but they won't get drunk, as Scripture says. We don't fight over that. We don't, we don't fight over baptism. So, for instance, we practice believer's baptism. We baptize people who have, who have professed a faith in Jesus Christ, and when we baptize them, we baptize them in water. We take them all the way down until they're good and wet. We don't uh, spritz them. We don't fire hose them. We just dunk them down. Now, I know great Christians, great pastors who spritz and, and who hose and, and who pour and who, who, who baptize infants. And we don't fight over this. We love them. We all, we, we love the same God and we serve the same uh, Jesus and the gospel. We don't fight over that. Um, some of you have very strong opinions about schooling choices. Uh, Mac or PC, dogs or cat. Well, that one's pretty clear actually. But here's the thing. When truth is at stake, we must contend for the gospel. We must. In Jude 3, it says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you. Notice, to what? To contend. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So some things we must contend for, the essentials, but that is not what's going on in Philippians here. That's not the issue. This is apparently about preferences that these women had or opinions or non-essentials and they did not agree and they were fighting over it. So again, it's important for us to note the difference. So my wife and I, for instance, we've been married for many years. We agree on many, many things. We don't agree on everything, but we agree on the essentials. So for instance, we agree on the deity of Christ. We believe that he is God. Now, if, if for some reason one of us was suddenly to, to not believe that, that would, that would be a source of contention there. And that would be something we'd have to say, boy, we just can't agree here. Thankfully, that's not the issue. On the other hand, there are other things like maybe we don't agree on the thermostat. And we do not agree on the thermostat at all, all right? So when it comes to the thermostat, we have grace. And that's what, what, we, what we see here in Scripture, that there needs to be grace for these issues that are non-essentials or secondary or, or distinctives. Here's the fourth thing I want to point out here, that, that the damage in the church can be so costly. And what it costs oftentimes is something not even on our, on our radar. Friction between two people is never isolated to two people. Have you noticed that? It never just stays between two people. Have you noticed that two people in a family at odds with each other will impact the entire family? Two people at odds in a workplace, well, it never just stays between them or in a neighborhood and not even in a church. So the, the conflict between these two women, 
we're guessing is probably affecting all areas of the church. It's, it's probably affecting the worship services. So it's not a church with three services. They have one service and they probably met in a house. So it's a very small setting. And when these two women who could not get along are in the room together and everyone knows what's going on, it feels awkward. It feels awkward at their prayer meetings, at their church meals. It's, it's creating stress when both women are in the room and, and ultimately, you know how this goes? When there's a disagreement, sometimes people start taking sides and the division is growing and the shift, the, the focus begins to move away from Jesus and away from the gospel and away from these things and it starts to shift to people. It, it moves away from the mission and, and it starts destroying the reputation of, of Christians and, and the reputation of God in the community. In fact, Jesus in, in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, when he was praying for us, he prayed this. He said, the glory that you have given me, he's praying to the Father, that you have given me and I, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. And then he says this, look at this. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You see, conflict in the church does a lot of things. It, it distracts us and that's not good. Uh, we start talking and saying things about people we shouldn't say. We start taking sides we shouldn't take. We start debating unworthy issues Right, the focus moves away from the gospel and away from God. But I would suggest that the highest price that we pay is that when this happens in the church, it begins to hide the glory of God in us. And that should be the thing that concerns us more than anything else. When we fight, when we bicker, when we divide, and when people see that, it hides. It veils the glory of God that should be unveiled, that should be shining this glory that comes from God bringing different people from all different parts of the world and cultures and all this and preferences. It brings them together where they become one. And this is the glory of God, but it is hidden. It's hidden and this is the great cost. And it's costly when we argue and fight and divide. Here's the fifth thing then we can see in the passage in that Paul says sometimes you need a little help from your friends and this is what's going on here. Notice in verse three again he says, yes, I ask you also true companion, notice what he says, help these women. Now here's the context and this is so, the context of this is great. This was a letter that Paul wrote from prison, wrote it out, gave it to someone who took it to Philippi, took it to the church. Now this is typically the way this would work. It would be addressed to an individual in the church. That individual took this letter and then on the next Lord's Day, they would take the letter to church and they would stand up and they would say, uh, well, I have something to read to you, church. Remember our, our founding missionary? Remember Paul? Well, he's written us a letter. And so now I'm going to read the letter to you out loud in our worship service. And so he began to read the letter, reading chapter one, and like, oh, they're probably like, chapter one's awesome, that's a great chapter. Chapter two, oh, that's even better. Like Paul's going through hard stuff, but good, good. Chapter three, oh, they're just kinda, oh, the resurrection power of Jesus, that's awesome. Then they get to chapter four, and it gets really quiet, right? I mean, think about this, it's a small house church, and 
they start reading, and, he, and, and all of a sudden he reads the, the actual names, the names of the two women. They're probably right there, right? Super awkward. I imagine he's like reading and looking at them, and I don't know if everybody looks at them or if nobody. You know, it's like I don't even want to make eye contact. It's super awkward. What's going on here? Paul's sending a message, a not-so-subtle message, that he considered this issue between these two women to be an all-church public kind of thing. And so Paul asks for an intervention by a third party. He calls him the true companion. We don't, we don't know who it was. Some think it was Clement. Some think it was uh, whoever read the letter. Some think it might have actually been uh, Luke. Uh, we don't know who it was, but his duty was clear. He was to help. And this word help in the Greek means to take hold of together and to assist. So you, you get the picture. Somebody needs to help these women because they're just not going to work it out on their own. And by reading this to the entire church family in a church service, Paul is inviting everyone. He's inviting everyone to get involved because maintaining unity in the church isn't just the responsibility of pastors and leaders. It's something that we all need to protect. It is precious, it is God-given, and we need to protect it. All of us, all of us. It, that's the message Paul has here. Now, Paul doesn't, spell out the process. In the same way, he didn't spell out what the actual issue was. But the goal is clear, that the leadership in the church are to help Euodia and Suntuke, to help them, which probably included prayer, right? Everyone could pray for them. In fact, they might have stopped right then and prayed for them, I don't know. It could have involved an intervention where somebody might have said, you know what, we just, I need to sit the two of you down at a table and we're gonna work this out. It might have involved some discussion and some pastoral counseling and maybe some accountability. In 1 Corinthians 1, we find that the church in Philippi wasn't the only church that had some of these issues. Paul wrote to this church in, in Corinth, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree, because as you go on to read the letter, you find out they didn't, that you all agree and that there be no division among you. That's setting a pretty high bar, isn't it? That there be no division, not, not some, not 10% is acceptable, like none. No divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So there's kind of two, two layers to this. The, the first layer is this. We all need to make sure that we are personally doing this in our lives. That if there are any, any divisions going on between us and other people, that we are actively working that out. But there's another layer to this, and that is we need to take responsibility as well for the people around us when they need a little help. And we all need a little help sometimes. Again in verse three, he says, yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. So, so Paul is calling us to be a little like Jesus, right? Because that's what we do. We're, we're, we're Christians, which means little Christ. We want to be like Jesus. Jesus was our, our mediator. So I would kind of put it this way. He was a all caps mediator between God and man. Jesus is the one who, who saw that there was distance between us and God, a separation, and so he took care of that separation, and he is the mediator. He, he brings us together with the Father in so many ways. But there are times when we are called to be mediators as well, but I put it in all you know, lower, ca or lower letters there, because we're not exactly doing everything that Jesus did, but we do some of those things. We are called to be mediators at times for each other 
to, to, to help bring unity back into our church fellowship. See, it's our business when, when others in our church are fighting and when they are divided because it's impacting our spiritual family and if we don't deal with it, it will spread. And again, the big issue is that, that, that it begins to veil the glory of God that should be present in this place. In John 13, 35, Jesus said this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love, this, this unity for one another. So it's so important, it's so important that sometimes you and I need to give people around us a little push right, to help them. Not just look the other way, but help them. And here's, here's the last thing. The solution, he says, is Jesus. The solution is, is in the Lord. I, okay, so I'm gonna try this one more time. Todd's been in all three services. I think you'll agree with me. I, this didn't really go well the first two services, but I'll, right? No, he says it died. Okay, so I'll try it. I'll try it one more time. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. Okay, so there's this old story. You may have heard this. There's an old story about a fifth grade Sunday school. Right? So you remember Sunday school? And the kids get together and the flannel graph and the teacher. So the teacher's talking to the fifth graders and, and she says this. Okay, she says, I'm, uh, if you know the answer, just raise your hand. So she says, I'm, I'm looking for um, the name of something. It's, it's small. Anyone? And it's, and it's furry. And, and um, it climbs up trees. And it has a bushy tail, anyone, anyone? Uh, okay, uh, and it collects nuts. And finally, one of the students raised her hand and she says, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm gonna say Jesus because it's Sunday school, right? <laughs> no, okay. Thank you, thank you, yes, very good. There you go, all right. Well, literally, that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying the answer actually is Jesus in this situation. He says this again, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Suntuke to agree, three words here, that appear many times in this letter of Philippians. In the Lord. So in the Lord is this very key uh, phrase that Paul uses several times in this book. What does it mean to be in the Lord? Well, it starts with you and with me. It starts when I place my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it starts when I, when I recognize, when I confess that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. When I uh, confess that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh who lived a perfect, perfect righteous life for me, that he died on the cross and, and paid for my sin, that he uh, was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to many, that he ascended to heaven. When I place my faith, when I trust Christ, it says that one of the things that now describes me is I am in the Lord. I'm in Christ. So once you are in the Lord and once I am in the Lord, then we have the ability to agree in the Lord, right? Now, this doesn't mean we have to agree on uh, the, the kind of coffee we drink or, you know, that we listen to the same music or wear the same tennis shoes or, you know, read the same Bible translation. That's not what it's talking about. It means we find agreement in Jesus. We are in Jesus. So I put it this way. Our agreement is in three things, who he is, what he's done, and what he's taught. Just put it that way. Who he is, that, that once we're in Christ, we have agreement on that. That we have agreement about what he's done for us and that we have agreement about what he's taught. And Jesus becomes our common ground, our unity, our, our oneness. And the thing that unites us together is not a doctrinal statement, it is Jesus Christ himself. Because our doctrinal statement, uh, if you will, it, it proceeds forth from Christ. It proceeds forth from, from who he is. And so, it works kind of this way. If I am in harmony, if I am in the Lord, and if you are in the Lord, it kind of puts us 
in the same place together, doesn't it? So in other words, the, the key here is that we don't get unity in oneness through sitting down at a table and like, you know, let's just work this out. It's where I'm in agreement with, with the Lord and you're in agreement with the Lord and that gives us agreement. That is our, our common ground. That's where it starts. Now in the context, I, we need to understand this. What Paul is basically saying is this, that we need to put him at the center of our relationships. That's the context. What does it mean to be in the Lord? Well, Paul's talking about relationships. So what that means is we put Christ at the center of our relationships. In other words, we do relationships his way. And by the way, his way is a very, very specific way. So I wanna give you a couple of uh, examples. These are on your notes on the backside. A um, couple examples about what this looks like. John 15, 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment. So what he's about to say is so important that he says, I command you, you know, I, I order you to do this, all right? That you love one another just as I have loved you. So again, we'd say, all right, so we're supposed to love one another. How do we love one another? We put Jesus at the center of our relationships. We love one another like he has loved us. Now that's kind of a broad statement, but scripture actually kind of narrows that down for us. Uh, for instance, we can go to Romans 15, seven. There it says this, therefore accept one another. Now the word therefore, or the word accept, the word accept there has the idea of weaknesses and failings. So what he's saying is accept the weaknesses and failings of one another just as Christ accepted your weaknesses and your failings. So when you came to Christ, did you have it all together? No, I didn't even know you, but I know you didn't, all right? And you, by the way, you still don't have it all together because we all have weaknesses and failings. When we came to Christ, did, did you go to, you know, get on your knees and ask Christ in and then he said, yeah, no, not yet. We're gonna have to wait a little bit longer. I have grace, but not that much for you, all right? So when you can get your act together, no, that is not how we come to Christ. We come in weakness and failing. You ever look at people around you and think, I'd, I'd love to love them, but they're just so weak, right? They have so many failures. It's just, yeah, that's right. That's the point, just like you. Here's another one, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another. In other words, don't be unkind to one another. Be tenderhearted towards one another. And he says this, forgiving each other. How do we forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you? How's, how has God in Christ forgiven us? When we came to Christ, and I had some interesting conversations after the 11 o'clock service about this whole concept right here. But let me just say it quickly. When you came to Christ, and you confessed your sin, and he forgave you, right? Was that, was that it? Or is it just like you had it all figured out, and Christ is like, okay, now you understand the depth of your depravity, and I forgive you? Yeah, no. No, of course you didn't. How many times have you, like, I was talking to somebody after, uh, after the 11 o'clock service, and we were talking about how this whole idea of growth is a little, uh, you know, it's something we kind of dig down into. Like maybe there was a time in your life when you were speaking bad words about someone and, and God convicted you. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't speak bad words, so you, you, you repented and you stopped speaking bad words. And then maybe a little later, God started, God started, you know, uh, making you feel guilty about the fact that you weren't speaking them, but you were still, you were still thinking them, right? And then God says, let's go a little bit deeper. He has this idea, forgiving each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Did you have to have everything figured out for him to forgive you? No, no you didn't. That's how we forgive one another. Colossians 3, 13. 
bearing with one another, that word bearing is, is long suffering. So not just patience, but long patience, long suffering. Anyone around you just feel like it, it's a long suffering situation? Yeah, he says, uh, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Again, that idea. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, right? Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive them. Just as God forgave you, you forgive them. That's how you put Christ at the center of a relationship. Romans 14, 19. Uh, so then we pursue the things which make for peace because Jesus came so that we could have peace with the Father and then we can have peace with each other and the building up the spiritual building up of one another, right? Just as Christ is, is building us up, so we build up one another. One more, Ephesians 4, 2. With all humility and, and with gentleness, with, with patience, right? The, patience comes in a lot here. Showing tolerance. Again, that word tolerance has the idea of failings and, and having different preferences and, and convictions that we show tolerance for people different from us and that we love one another. Now, we call these kind of the one another's, and in fact, there's about 57, I think, 57, 59 one another's in the New Testament. I think there's about 27 unique one another's, and we could go on, we won't. But in other words, these one another's, they kind of spell out for us, what does it look like to put Jesus at the center of your relationship? It's not just to say he's at the center, it's to put him there practically. It's to put the words and the teaching of Christ into practice in our relationships, in our marriage, with our friends, with our kids, with our neighbors, with one another in the church. We put these into practice. And then here's how Paul caps the whole thing off. I love this. In verse four, he says this in our text. Here's how we close it out. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, Philippians 4, 4 uh, was probably the first passage I ever memorized in scripture. Uh, but I memorized verse four, five, six, seven, and eight. And that's, we usually put chapter, our verse four with five, six, seven, and eight. But in fact, contextually in the Greek, it's tied more to the first three verses than the verses that come after it. We don't tend to think of it that way. So what does it mean that he attaches rejoice in the Lord at the end of this discussion about these two women who don't get along? Well, let's think about it again. Euodia and Suntuke were at an impasse. Apparently, they were not capable at this point in working it out. They needed some help. The congregation was caught up in it. There's stress, there's division. Uh, it probably had robbed them of their joy, which is why Paul keeps bringing it up. So Paul says, here's what you need to do. Let's, let's get everyone together on the Lord's day. Let's stop looking at each other. Let's look to God. Let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's sing to Jesus. Let's pray to the Father. Let's praise God. Let's enjoy him. Let's look to him. Let's live in the Lord. And when we are rejoicing in the Lord, we are standing on common ground. And it's so important that we need to do this continually. In other words, I think of it this way. I think what Paul's saying is this. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for our relationships. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for our marriage. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard in our relationships with one another because there are going to be times when we don't agree. And there are gonna be times when we get a little bit proud and a little bit judgmental on non-essential issues and we want to divide. But rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard because it does some interesting things. When we rejoice in the Lord, it's inviting God into our midst. It's putting him at the center of our thoughts, not other people. It's shifting our focus 
to the things that unite us, not the things that divide us, to the one who has made us family, to the one who has made us one. Rejoicing in the Lord impacts our attitude and the way we treat other people and our love for others and the grace that we have for others. And so he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, what? Rejoice. And I don't know, but maybe your marriage needs more than anything else right now for you to be rejoicing in the Lord. Maybe you've got some friends and there's some friction And instead of insisting that you get your way, maybe what you need to do today is rejoice in the Lord. Maybe that's what we need to do as a church family. And so that's what we're going to do. We uh, started the sermon a little bit early, so we still have a little bit of time, and we're going to rejoice in the Lord. The band's gonna come up in a minute, and and we're gonna sing together, and I'm gonna encourage us to do that. And as we sing, to be thinking about our Lord and Savior and what he's done for us. But I, I don't have this in the notes, but just a couple of things as we close this out. A little something to do. The first is this. I would just ask you this question. Is there someone, is there another believer in your life right now that you have, you have divided over? You have, maybe you're not talking. And it's not because of some essential doctrine. It's just because of a preference. And you've been proud and you need to make things right. That would mean that my first question for you, is there someone, has God been putting someone on your heart? And if so, what will you do about that? And if you don't know what to do about it, maybe you need to ask someone for help. The second thing is this. As you see people in your world, believers in your world that have, there's friction and they've divided and they need some help, maybe you should help them. You can absolutely pray for them. Can't you? you can absolutely pray about that. It may be that you need to do more than that. It may mean that you need to seek God's wisdom and, and, and to get involved and maybe talk with them. Maybe try to bring them together. Are you divided over a non-essential issue with someone right now and you need to make it right? Is there someone that you need to help? Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray for us. Actually, I'm gonna pray for the offering that we're going to take and, uh, and then we are going to rejoice in the Lord together. Amen? Let me pray for us.